we are going to um, look at this story of the prodigal son and uh, the older brother today. And this is kind of a significant message. This is probably the, 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 the message which has messed me up the, the most and I've been trying to wrestle with it over the last however long. And so I hope it kind of makes sense to you this morning. So it's part of this year of redemption which we've been doing and um, the two sons representing two groups of people. And we've been through week one, the introduction, uh, week two, disillusionment and exile, week three, homecoming. Week four, last week we did the kiss, the robe and the sandals and talked about grace. And this week we're talking about the older brother, modern day Pharisees. And next week it is banquet. (laughs) We had to celebrate. And I got some interesting stuff around that. But um, the reason for the story is really important to grasp what we're talking about. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus is addressing that situation with this parable, and there's three short parables in there. There's the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the lost two sons. They're both lost, but in different ways. And also that's the father's heart to seek and to save the lost. It's a rescue operation. And, and the question is, what does it actually mean to be spiritually lost? And it's, I think it's really easy to identify in the younger son, right? That he's, you know, he's gone off the rails, he's disappeared down and hit the, the big city, and he's demanded his inheritance and squandered it. But elder brother lostness is, is a little bit more difficult to understand, and it's, a, and it's a different kind of lostness which we need to identify in this. And, and these are the people who Jesus was calling out at this time. So we've got the two groups of people. We've got the the tax collectors and the sinners who are represented by the younger brother, the wayward sinners, the immoral outsiders. And we've got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law which are represented by the elder brother, the moral insiders, the established, the people, the rule followers. And, you know, there's these two ways to be alienated from God. And the tendency is that the older brother is the people pleaser, does what's right, follows the rules, the responsible one who obeys the parents. And the younger sibling tends to be the rule breaker, the rebel, the free spirit. So in society we have these two groups of people often and represented by the rule keepers and the rule breakers, the the status quo people and the rebels, the the accountants and the artists, the conservatives and the liberals, the Prince Williams and the Prince Harrys of this world. And uh, so we're going to tackle the older brother, the moral insider today. And I think it's that thing that, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. And however, despite living in the father's house for all his life, he somehow ends up also alienated from the father and needs redemption. So I'm going to track through these verses. Let me read them through to you first, and then then we'll go from there and we'll track through this passage. Um, It's taken a long time to get through like a few scriptures, isn't it? This is a series. But anyway, we'll take another, I think it's six scriptures today. So Luke 15, verse 25 to 31. Meanwhile, the elder son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So, uns, 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 it's all going on at the, at the house. And so he called out one of his servants and asked him, Hey, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The elder brother became angry, refused to go in. 
So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Okay, so it's a a really familiar passage, but do we actually really understand it? So let's go, okay. The old elder son was in the field when he came near the house and he heard the music and dancing. So here's the father, and he's throwing perhaps like the biggest party, okay? He's putting it on. He's killing the fatted calf. We learnt last week he was given the robe, the ring, the sandals. And the older brother, he's refusing to go in. So the the older brother, he's standing outside, and, and no way is he going in. He's not happy that his brother's back, and he's definitely not keen on partying at this point. And to be honest, it's a huge vote of no confidence in his father. So what's the father's reaction? His father goes out, and he pleads with him. See, what you notice with the father, even with the younger brother, and also with the older brother, that he goes out and pursues him. See, here's this older brother. He's, he's lived in the father's house, but somehow has failed to know the father's heart. But I want you to listen to, to, to the older brother's complaint, okay? It's this, look, all the years I've been slaving for you and never displayed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so, so you can celebrate with my friends. And you can hear it in his voice. All these years I've been slaving for you. And it's the same thing is that he still saw himself as the father's slave rather than the father's son. He still perceived himself as a slave mentality. And he viewed his father as the slave master. See, older brothers obey God to get the things. They use it as a bargaining tool. But they don't obey God to get God himself. Yeah, true. And it becomes, easily becomes this fear-based compliance. Even though he's a son, he's reduced himself to the slave mentality. And it comes across, you know, I never disobeyed your orders. You know, I'm the good child. I've done well. I've done everything right. You, you never gave me a goat so I could celebrate with my friend. It's, it's, it's this, where's my goat? Never give me my goat. And he has this kind of like a bit of a foot stamping tantrum. You never threw me a party. And he's still, despite living in the father's house, he's still unsure of the father's love for him. And he's wondering in his head, he's got this wonder, even in his following the rules, whether he has done enough to earn a young goat. And out of this comes this, this kind of this anger and superiority. And, and one of the first signs that you have elder brother lostness is that when your life doesn't go the way you would like it to, you begin to get bitter and angry and resentful. See, because you believe, there's this belief that, that, that if you follow the rules, you deserve a good life. 
God owes you, if, if you live up to the standard, right? If you've been a decent human being, you know, I've done this for you, God, therefore you owe me this. And, and, and if things go wrong, we get furious at God for allowing it. And, and it creates within us this, this inability to handle suffering. And it leads to comparison, feeling that you're owed more. You know, why has this happened to me and not to this other person? After all I've done for you, God. Has anyone ever had those feelings? I've served you all my life. I've never disobeyed you. Why am I suffering? Why has this happened to me? And there's always someone who's living slightly better, doing better, living their best life. Especially when you scroll through social media, right? <laughs> and you go, ah, how come this person's doing that? How come they're, you know, doing all this going on? I'm still struggling with this stuff. And and for me personally, this is this is this is where I get stuck. I am the older brother. When I, when I go through this, I get stuck right here, and I fall into this trap. Like for me, like I've grown up in church all my life. Um, I'm a fifth generation pastor, and uh, I've, I kind of forgot to rebel. I've never really rebelled. Um, probably my my rebellion days were going to Christchurch, and I grew me here long and wore black for a few years. That was about that was about the you know the state of my rebellion. Me. That's when I got you. <laughs> Met Priscilla in a nightclub in La Palladium. When uh, yes, that's another story. And you know, probably you know the extent of my rebellion. I, you know, in the seventies, like my mum, she did macrame because that's what mums did, and um, not macrame, cane baskets um, in the seventies. And so I, my attempt at smoking was to steal some of her cane, go out behind the the bike shed, <laughs> light it up, and just about choke myself to death and decided I was never doing that again so I've never smoked, I've never done drugs, I've never done any of that sort of stuff, that was kind of, kind of like you know, my extent of rebellion, I've grown up in the church and, and, and everything like that and, and, but as a pastor we can easily feel God is more interested in what we do than who we are you know, are we successful are we blessed I've been slaving all my life. I've been the good child. Where's my goat? <laughs> Come on. And our value becomes in our performance and outcomes. How big is your church? And that can lead to anger and resentment. Our God becomes the angry, smite me God that we can never measure up to. You know, here I am, you know, struggling to grow a church in Glen Innes, and it's like, oh man. And then, then someone turns up and plants a church, and they've only been, you know, a Christian for five minutes, and they're not theologically trained, and their church explodes, and you go, God, what's that about? You go, God, where's my goat? Where's my goat? Don't panic, I'm good. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this, is just, this is just reality, pastoral confessions this morning. I love the people here and I love the purpose of what we're doing and I have a counsellor. <laughs> and, uh, and it's one of the things I'm processing at the moment with my counsellor um, and going, uh, you know, and, and I've had a little bit of a revelation which will come at the end of the message around this. But we can go get so stuck in that, where's my goat? God, you're blessing this person and this person and that person and this is happening. See, it's in that belief that God owes us something. And he, 
the belief that are we getting what we deserve? Not even a goat. Just to have a little celebration with his mates, a reward for good behaviour. Well, this undeserving brother turns up and he gets the fatted calf in this massive party. And, I, and you know, personally, I believe that if the older brother had ever asked for a goat, I'm sure he would have got one. But this feeling of, I'm just a slave to the system. See, the Pharisees see life not in terms of mercy, but in terms of what we deserve to get. It's about fairness. I've served God all these years. He owes me something and working hard to get God to like us. And then we complain when we feel like we don't get what we deserve, what we bargained on. And he says this, 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 this son of yours. And, and, and note in this little parable that the older brother, he never calls his father, father. And he never calls his brother, brother. He says, this son of yours. The younger brother refers to his father four times. For some father. And it says, this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. See, the language he uses is, this son of yours meaning no brother of mine. And he views his relationship with his father in terms of tasks, what he did rather than who he was. And it comes across as, as this judgmental thing. You've squandered your property with prostitutes. You know, he's saying, now, I would never do anything as bad as that. And, and he doesn't see himself as a sinner saved by grace. So the question which kind of comes out of all of this is, so whose side has God on? So is God on the side of the younger brothers or is God on the side of the older brothers how does it work is it the immoral outsiders or the moral insiders is it the artists or the accountants is it the liberal lefties or the conservatives and there's this little incident which happens in Joshua and Joshua takes over from Moses and they're about to take, enter into the promised land and take Jericho and I want to add it in here and so Joshua, he, he's alone, right? And, and he's scouting out the territory around Jericho. And he encounters this angel, the commander of the army, with a sword drawn. And, and Joshua asks him like a, a fairly logical question. Are you for us or for our enemies? Who are you who you're about? And the answer comes loud and clear. Neither, he replied. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now you say neither which is, which is kind of remarkable so here's Joshua who's the leader of the only nation who who's God's made a covenant with so God's made a covenant with Israel and, and he's saying to them and he's instructed them to, to take this land and drive out the inhabitants and he's promised them the land and yet with, with, you would think with all those things in favour right? you would think okay Surely the angel of the commander of the Lord, he's going to be with Joshua, right, isn't he? But no, he's saying neither. The commander of the army of the Lord will not pledge exclusive loyalty to the Israelites. See, God is not on their side and he's not on ours. See, 
God does not take sides, not then and not now. And, and he, he acts on his own free will. And we're the ones who must decide if we're going to be on God's side. Because right. he, he refuses to back human agendas. He calls us to surrender to his obedience and his will. And, and, and Joshua gets this, right? He gets this at this time. And he falls on his face before the angel, asking if God has a command he needs to fulfill. He's basically going, okay, God, you're a boss. I'm on my knees. You know, I'll follow you, whatever's required. And I think that's the call, isn't it? Because sometimes we get so caught up of, you know, is it this or that or who or how does this work? Whose side has God on? And you say, oh, I'm not on anyone's side. Obey me. Yeah. Fall on your knees. Tree bed in the, in, the, in the Lord of the Rings. The Hobbit. He, he asked the ancient tree bed, whose side is he on? And uh, he answers with this which I think is beautiful. He says, I am not altogether on anybody's side because no one is altogether on my side. But there are some things, of course, whose side I am altogether not on. How's that? Ancient wisdom. There somewhere. And And I think in this little parable that Jesus is answering this question. And he's saying, hey, he's not on one side or the other, but he singles out the Pharisees and their religious moralism as a deadly spiritual condition. And he saves his harshest criticism for the Pharisees and their unwillingness to include the outsiders, the lost. And and you find it, you know, I've been amazed, as I've been reading through the Gospels, again, and, and, and looking for this Pharisee, tax collector kind of comparison thing going, there are so many comparisons which Jesus uses and little stories and little moments there's the religious person and the sexual outcast in Luke chapter 7, we talked about I think in one of the weeks about the, the woman of ill repute with the alabaster jar of perfume and she's at, there at Simon the Pharisee's house whose side is Jesus on? He says, hey, come on. This woman, her sins are forgiven. And she pours out this perfume. The religious person in the racial outcast in John 3 verse 4, you, you have Nicodemus who comes at night and asks Jesus, what, what does it mean to be born again? He, he's this religious leader. And then your next chapter, you have the Samaritan woman at the well. And again, who walks away forgiven? the Samaritan woman you have the religious person and the political outcast in Luke chapter 90 you've got Zacchaeus the tax collector who's up the tree so sinners and tax collectors are going, Jesus says look come down from the tree because I'm coming to your house I'm going to eat with you it was a big thing in those days See, each time it's the outcast who connects with Jesus and receives forgiveness and the elder brother type does not. See, Jesus' teaching continually attracted the outcasts while offending the religious people of the day. However, my concern is that in the main that our churches fail to have that effect. 
See, my question is, are we appealing to the younger brothers, or are we more full of elder brothers than we would like to think? See, with, with, with Jesus, it was, it was always mercy and grace. Matthew 23, 23, this, he says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites! I mean, this is harsh. For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, faith. You should tithe. Yes, but do not neglect the more important things. So here he's talking to the Pharisees and come on, what's more important? Well, what about this one in, in Matthew chapter 21? We've got the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. This is a scary little passage. Verse 28, what do you think then? There was a man who had two sons and he went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. And then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of you, the two, did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Come on. We gotta think this stuff through. Jesus was saying, "Come on, guys. We think we got it all together. We think we got this thing all worked out." But he requires mercy. He requires mercy. And he's saying, "Hey, this outcast, the moral outsiders, are entering the kingdom of God before you." In Luke chapter 18, verse 14, and if I expanded all these parables, this series would go on forever, but there's just, I want to give you some examples in here. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Another little parable, another little story. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The humble are in, the proud are out. Man. See, is our prayer lives about what we need God to do for us or is it about mercy and love for the Father are we seeking God's face or are we seeking God's hand see we need to understand that Jesus' message was absolutely revolutionary at this time and it was incredibly radical in its application of grace this turned the world upside down. You need to understand what Jesus was doing here and what he was saying. 
See, Christianity, it transformed the planet. This love of God, this kindness, dignity, social reform, and, and freedom for the oppressed. But my fear is that the message the world now hears is that God is bigoted. And my fear is that the government is now seen as the dispenser of love and kindness. And the church is viewed as hate speech. And we can blame the media for misrepresenting our beliefs. But I wonder if we need to actually need to take a hard look at ourselves and ask ourselves, have we become, 2,000 years later, the modern-day Pharisees? Have we somehow misrepresented the Father's heart for the tax collector and sinners and created again the ins and the outs in the pursuit of upholding the laws? And that the kingdom of God is once again ruled by the older brothers, the Pharisees, and the younger brothers, the tax collectors and the sinners, want nothing to do with it. That scares me. That scares me when I think that through and when I've wrestled with this. And it makes me think how we should be doing church sometimes. But what I love, and this is, this is the beautiful thing, I love the Father's response. The Father's response. Here's the answer. And this is my personal revelation and fresh water on a, on a thirsty soul. Words of life. This, my son, the Father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. This is the words of the older brother. See, the father goes out to him. He hears him out. He listens to his anger. Now, how will the father respond to this open defiance? And once again, you find the father's heart is... He offers the older brother incredible grace, the same as he offered the younger brother. What did the older brother deserve at that point? He probably deserved a bit of a telling off, right? If I was the dad, you know, it's like, you know, your attitude sucks. Now get yourself together. Go and give your brother a hug and get into the party. That's what you'd say, wouldn't you? If you're the dad, you come on, what are you doing? It's your brother's home. Get in the party. Give him a hug. It's all good. Give him a pat on the back. Welcome him home. My son, the father said, so instead he gives them this reaffirmation of sonship. You're my son. You're my son. You're not a slave. I still want you at the feast. But I'm not going to disown your younger brother. And I don't want to disown you either. And, and he says that you're always with me. And, and that speaks to belonging. See, God is with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Always. You're always with me. That's water right there. See, one of the deepest needs as humans is to belong. To be a part of someone. 
He's saying, you're always with me. You're always with me. And then he says, everything I have is yours. And that speaks to inheritance. You've got the goat. <laughs> and you've got everything else as well. And as we talked about the other week, it's technically true. Because if the father had divided his inheritance between the two sons, which we read earlier in the scripture, the remainder of that inheritance would be going to the older brother. So here he is, the older brother. He, he has everything. The fullness of the inheritance. See, we're not, we're not slaving for God. We're his children. And we have reason to celebrate. It is true we do work in the Father's house. There are things to be done. But it's out of gratitude. It's not to repay God, not to earn our way. See, sonship is a free gift from God to be adopted into the family. And you have an inheritance as part of the family. See, elder brother lostness is most dangerous because often we don't see ourselves as being lost. You know, if you know you're sick, you may seek out a doctor. But if you don't know you're sick, you don't until maybe it's too late. Remember in this passage that Jesus is addressing the Pharisees and these are the people who will go on to betray him. So if we take it back to what Jesus is saying here, he's talking to these people, but he knows that in a few chapters he's going to be betrayed by these same people, that they'll call for him to be crucified. But here still is this loving plea to turn from anger and self-righteousness. It's the Father's love. The weird thing is that the story actually ends there. Ends with, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and found. And, and, and you can imagine the crowd at this point, right? Here's the crowd going, and they're, they're wrestling with this story because they know what this story is about. They've worked it out. They've identified the two groups of people and they're going, well, will, will the older brother go in and celebrate? Will he get into the feast? What's going to happen? Will the family be united and live happily ever after? What's going to happen? We know that the younger brother receives forgiveness, he receives mercy, receives sonship. What happens with the older brother? Jesus doesn't finish the story. He leaves it right there. Why not? Again, we need to go back to why the story, Jesus began the story, because this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's not resolved. It's not resolved. And it's the older brother who remains lost it's the older brother who remains alienated from the father the bad son enters into the feast the good son remains outside prostitutes and sinners are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you that should make us stop and contemplate right? Are we the modern day Pharisees? Here's another question I want to throw at you this morning. What if the prodigal son encounters the older brother first? What if the prodigal son encounters the older brother first? See, I think in this day and age in Auckland, 
There are so many people out of church, not attending church. They love the Father. Yeah. Still a Christian, still believe. But I'm not going to go to church. And prodigals don't come back to church not because they don't love the father, yeah. it's because they're scared of meeting the older brother. Yeah, what if the younger brother comes home to find that the father has died and that the older brother has been left in charge? Yeah. <laughs> and they say, I just can't deal with the people, those who are supposed to be my brothers and sisters. Yeah. They come in. They're looking for the Father's embrace but feel like they're getting a brother who doesn't even want to talk to them and is resenting their return. And I think that there's there's this whole lot of people who have left the church, maybe rejected the rule keepers, they've rejected joyless religion and they kind of poke their noses back in the door and they ask the question, is there a welcome party? Is there a banquet? Yeah. Or is there an older brother who is angry and refuses to welcome them in? Yeah. Do you know some people like that? <laughs> Say, Man, I, I, I love Jesus. I just can't deal with this church thing. Yet staying away from church because of older brothers is just another form of self-righteousness. And I don't think there's you're going to be able to grow spiritually apart from a deep involvement with a community of other believers. You need a family of believers. And I, I love the church. I'm a great believer in church. It's flawed, yes. I'm very, very, very aware of that. It's full of people. Yeah. It's full of people. We get some things right, we get a lot of things wrong. But I think church is like family Christmas. <laughs> that family Christmas? <laughs> There's always a weird uncle, right? Who's the weird uncle or two? <laughs> There's always a couple of annoying siblings. There's nosy aunties who ask why you aren't married yet or are you having kids? There's always someone who drinks too much and makes inappropriate jokes at the party. There's all these different people. It's kind of weird, but it's the church. There's always that person who says, haven't you shot up and pinches you on the cheek? And the kids love that when they go to the Christmas. You've grown so much. But personally, I love the church. I'm part of it. It's not perfect. It's full of people. But can we as a church keep our arms open wide approach? Let's work really, really hard to keep our older brotherness at low levels. Let's try and minimise that as much as possible and let's display the Father's embrace and welcome. Let me bring this home. I know it's a longer message today. It's okay. What must we do to be saved? See, the gospel message is not the righteous and the unrighteous. It's not the immoral outsiders, the moral insiders. It's not whose side is God on. It's we have all sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. That we all need a saviour. That we all need the Father's embrace. But will we fall on our knees and accept that invitation of grace? And will we enter into the feast? Will we go in? See, we must repent of the things that we have done wrong. See, the main barrier between Pharisees and God is actually the good works. When we think, I've been good. I'm the good child. I've worked hard. I deserve a goat. But for it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. See, we've we, we got to put our trust in God, not in our own goodness or our own righteousness. We've got to lower the barriers, remove the obstacles, so that the younger brothers can come home. Amen. Amen. <laughs>